Hello again, listeners, and welcome to another edition of the Just Checking In podcast. This podcast, as always, is brought to you by Venn, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas, and start conversations. As always, I'm your host, Freddie Cocker, and I'm the founder and editor-in-chief of Venn. Each pod, I check in with a special guest. We have a natter about all things mental health, as well as everything and anything else they're passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we'll discuss it. On to my special guest now, and this event champion is someone I've wanted to get on the pod for quite some time now. She was one of the first people I really connected with, with through Vent that wasn't already my mate, and I've watched her develop and grow through the poetry she's written, as well as some of the articles she's written as well. That woman is Brie Leahy. Brie is currently a full-time university student at the University of East London, and is studying for a Bachelor of Social Sciences degree in Sport, Physical Education and Development. She's written for Vent's poetry section about her experience as a young gay woman, as well as an article about having to be a part-time carer for one of her family members and the grief she experienced when she lost them. Brie, welcome to the Just Checking In pod, mate. It's been a while since I saw you. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. You all right? Yeah, I'm not too bad. I'm not too bad. Um, so as I alluded to earlier, you actually reached out to me via Twitter from one of my call-outs back in the very, very early days of Vent um, for articles right at the start, and that's where our friendship started, didn't it? Yeah, it did. So, now we've got out of the way, shall we get started? Yeah. So I wanted to get straight into it on this pod, Brie, and so the first topic I wanted to discuss with you was your journey up to this point. Now, you wrote your first article for Vent about a year and a half ago, which detailed your experiences about being bullied at school, as well as when you became a young carer for your nan. So first of all, just tell me why you wanted to write that article, and for anyone who hasn't read it, what it's about. I wanted to write it because I feel like being a young carer isn't really something that a lot of people know about or really speak about, so I thought it was something important that you know other people who are in the same situation might not even realize that they were a young carer mm-hmm. and they could read that and then think oh wow that's a little bit like me mm. and what are the realities about being a young carer that perhaps some people might not realize just like the sheer volume of how much you're doing sometimes like some people think oh yeah you know it's just the same as doing your chores at home mm. it's really not there's no fall back on it you don't get to not do something mm-hmm. you have to do it otherwise it doesn't get done. Mm. And you write in the article that, that as a young person, you sort of weren't into the stereotypical things that your peer group were into. What, what did you mean by that? I think a lot of my peers were sort of into pop music and clothes and makeup. So and materialistic think, things. Yeah. yeah. Whereas for me, I think I spent a lot of my teenage years and before I turned into a teenager actually not thinking about that stuff mm-hmm. not really caring about it I think the only thing I was ever really bothered about was my nan being better mm-hmm. so all of that stuff kind of didn't matter to me I mm-hmm. think a bit of it comes down to my personality as well I mean I was never really into that stuff mm. but I think looking after my nan just really made the gap a bit and clearer you, yeah and do you think it was because you were looking after your nan that you didn't care about that about, about those things as much or do you think you generally just weren't as bothered by it I think it might have been, if I hadn't been looking after my nan, I think I might have been a little bit more interested mm-hmm. or felt like I had to make more of an effort to try so and more peer pressure, in. basically, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, so when you were in year eight, it was at this point that your nan's arthritis began to get a bit more, a bit worse, should I say, and you started to take on these carer responsibilities. Just just tell me a bit about that, how that happened, 
Um, did you, you know, do it automatically or was it something that your parents asked you to take on as well? So obviously before I get into that, it's, um, when I say looked after my nan, people were always like, oh, your, your mum must have made you. Mm. But it wasn't like that at all. So my mum's a nurse. And so when my mum would be on her long 12-hour shifts, I would always stay at my nan's. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't with my mum, I was always with my nan. Mm-hmm. You know, I kind of split my time quite evenly between the two places. So I basically lived there. Mm-hmm. That wasn't like the purpose for why I moved in. So, you know, it was kind of a, a gradual thing. I think at, you know, 12, 13, you can see if somebody's struggling and it started... Not all, not all 12, 13 well, years, I, I, I suppose not. But for me at 12, 13, I could see that, you know, my nan was struggling to bend down to get things out of the washing machine. And I could see that, you know, she was struggling to like wash up and mm. hoover and do little the things. The little things, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I just kind of, you know, I was lucky. I was never given any strict chores apart from like making my bed and making sure my bedroom was tidy. I never really had any other household responsibilities before then. Mm. So I, you know, it was just kind of a gradual build up of I started, you know, helping her wash up, helping her with the washing if I was at home. But, you know, it didn't just obviously happen overnight as it mm. does for some young carers. Mm. And taking on these extra responsibilities, I guess, if you want, if you were to look at it in a positive way, meant you got some life skills that perhaps I didn't even get until I was 18, 19. Oh. But it did sort of make you miss out on those conversations that perhaps your peers were having about certain TV programmes or, you know, other pieces of um, popular culture, should I say. You know, how did it make you feel at that age? Did you get a certain level of FOMO or fear of missing out or did it affect your anxiety, do you think, looking back? I think when I first started looking after my nan, I mean, it's it's difficult for me to even call it looking after her at that stage because all I was doing was washing up. But I think definitely as I moved into, like, year nine, year ten, the stuff I was doing definitely became more intense and you know I was missing out on things like I stopped playing football I stopped reading I just stopped doing different things that I that you enjoyed, enjoyed yeah. yeah you know so nothing I really did was for me all the mm. time I think a lot of teenagers are lucky without realizing it and that they get to be quite selfish mm. and pursue their own interests where for me it was just kind of like well this stuff has to be done, mm. someone has to do it, and, you know, it just so happened that it was me. But I think it definitely affected my anxiety. I mean, you're going into social situations and literally thinking, oh, my God, I can't even blag what I'm about to talk about mm. because I haven't caught up with The Only Way is Essex. Mm. I haven't, like... You're showing you know, your age here a little bit. Yeah. That age gap between us probably is a bit no, <laughs> present now. The only way is, yeah, The Only Way is Essex came about when I was first sort of in secondary school. Okay. And it was kind of... So wow. that was the big thing. So everyone would walk around saying, like, the sayings and all different things. Yeah, and stay doing ring. In, and doing... Imp- yeah, stay yeah, ring. Yeah. I'm so Don't gel. gel yeah. yeah, and saying things like that. And I just didn't have a clue what was going on. So, you know, you do the awkward thing where you try and play along, like, you know what's going on. But well, then someone tries end, to catch you out. Yeah, yeah. someone catches you out and you're a little bit like oh my god I just want the ground to swallow me up mm. as you make your way through school you state how your anxiety began to get worse and the early stages of depression began began to take hold just talk me through the Brie we meet at this point and how she's trying to juggle with all the responsibilities that she has that you know even as a 13 14 year old I mean me I look back to me at that time and I genuinely think I don't know how I did it mm. And that's, you know, that's not an over-exaggeration. By that point, my nan had um, Bell's palsy, which for people who don't know, that's like a facial paralysis condition Mm -hmm. where it looks like you've had a stroke but you haven't actually had one. Mm -hmm. So, you know, for most people it just goes, but for my nan it didn't. So we were going to physio appointments, we were going to doctor appointments, you know. So it was all quite intense, really. I was doing more stuff to help at home. She had a few more health needs that sort of slipped in, so I was making sure she was taking her tablets and just other little things that I had to do. And I think at this time, this is like pre-GCSE year. Mm, it's a lot of in pressure. Year nine. Yeah. So, you know, 
I've always been, you know, quite academic, so I've got my teacher saying, you know, you can do this, you can do this, you need to be doing extra work at home. Mm. And I'm sitting at home thinking, how am I going to do all this extra work? Because, you know, running a house doesn't... You can't just leave it, you know. Mm. I wasn't prepared to just sort of let us live in filth, Mm. you know. And I think my mum and my granddad and my aunt, they did help as much as they could. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's difficult when everyone's maintaining full-time work, you know. And it was sort of... It's one of them situations that if anyone had given up work, we probably wouldn't have been able to keep the house afloat, Mm -hmm. you know, and managed as we were. So, you know... I didn't mind having to do it. It was just sort of gradually became more and more difficult. Mm. And in year 10, am I right in saying that your nan was diagnosed with cancer? Is yeah. that correct? So I don't really think I can do how you felt justice. So why don't you tell me how that felt? I mean, even now, it's just so crazy mm. to look back on it. So my nan had a big operation on her face to sort of correct her Bell's palsy. Mm. So it was quite a long... It's like a 12-hour surgery. And, you know, it was quite long getting over that and then just before Christmas I was kind of sat down and you know it was just me and my nan and sort of everyone else was just sort of standing in the back Mm -hmm. but looking really upset but even then I didn't until they said it to me I didn't even quite put everything together you know I thought they'd all had a row or something I Mm -hmm. didn't really know why everyone was looking sad and my nan was like you know I've got um cancer and I was a bit like what do you mean because it just felt so crazy that she just had this massive operation that you know was which was supposed to get us all back to normal Mm. and then now she was telling me that she had cancer I mean originally they weren't going to tell me they were going to just try and keep it Mm. you know until after Christmas but there was a possibility that my nan would have had to have a feeding tube over Christmas so that would have affected your care responsibilities yeah and as well I would would, would have noticed it so they told me luckily she didn't end up needing the feeding tube and she started having radiotherapy over, like, the Christmas holidays. Mm. So when I went back to school in January, it was more weird because everyone was coming back talking about their Christmas presents mm. and, like, the iPhone 5C that they had just got mm. at the time and, like, their iPads and this and that. And, you know, everyone was like, did you have a good Christmas? And I was like, yeah. I just didn't tell anybody. Mm. I don't think I told one teacher, one of any of my friends, just nobody. I just sort of thought, well, you know... It's happening at home, and I just didn't want to talk about it. I didn't want to acknowledge the fact that it was happening, which, looking back, you know, probably wasn't my best decision because I was going to school. I was doing my best not to fall out with my teachers or, you know, Mm. be horrible to, like, my friends that I did have throughout the day. Then I was going home, and I was, like, changing burn dressings because when my nan had radiotherapy on her neck, it was like she had third-degree burns and Mm. needed changing every day and, you know, in charge of medication and stuff like that. It was really really quite a double life mm. I think at this point I think it's fair to say that you know your bullying got a lot worse um, with some horrific abuse that, that I definitely went through myself in school um, if you could you know what was some of the worst abuse that you got and if you could just say just, say, just tell me how about how that made you feel no of course I mean some of it was horrific. I think the worst stuff wasn't even the stuff that was aimed at me personally. Some people just go around saying that, oh, they wish my nan had died and that, you know, that she deserved to get cancer and stuff because people found out eventually. And when people... But why did they care? This is me then, talking you know, about why yeah. did they care, but... I suppose when you're already somebody who people don't like... They see a new target, then, yeah, yeah, it is, I And it then you. became... It sort of went to a new level. It went from just calling me, like, fat ugly and gay which I could sort of just bounce back and be like well you know I'm a bit chubby fair enough you know (laughs) wasn't the most attractive 13 year old I was like yeah fair enough I was like gay even though I didn't admit I was like yeah I'm pretty gay I can Mm. I can live with being called that but you know the stuff against my nan was just 
awful. And then, you know, I remember being on the bus one morning and someone was like, the people were, like, plotting to, like, cut my hair off. Like, they brought scissors into school and I used to wear my hair in a ponytail when they were going to cut my hair. And, you know, so I looked like I was ill. Mm. And, you know, you just think, like, you have to wonder... And you heard these people saying it. Yeah, yeah and I yeah. heard them saying it on the bus and I'm going into school and I'm thinking, why am I even going into school? Mm. What am I doing? Mm. But, like, you know, so that was when I first saw of... Before that point, I'd never even really told a teacher what was going on. And did you did you feel like you couldn't tell the teachers or did you feel like there was no teacher that you felt close enough to just say, look, this is what's going on and trusted them enough to tell, to tell them that? I think there were teachers that I trusted... It just took me a while to get to the point. Mm. So I think, you know, by then I was a lot closer with my PE teachers. And, you know, it just took on a new level, Mm. like a new kind of more sadistic level that Mm. I just wasn't comfortable with. Mm. It was at this time that that you said that you tried to to take your own life on two separate occasions at 13 and 14. Just first of all, just, just talk me through how these suicidal thoughts developed. And then if you could just... Without going into too much detail, just tell me about these two attempts and sort of sort of what was going through your head at the time. I think the suicidal thoughts sort of just crept up on me mm. without me even realising it. I think, you know... So how it happens. Yeah. yeah, I think retrospectively it's quite easy for me to look and say, oh, you know, I had them for possibly about when I was 13 years mm. old, you know. But I was just... I'd wake up and think... I just don't want to wake up. Mm. I would almost wake up and be like, fucking hell, I'm disappointed I'm awake. Mm. You know? And at the time, I didn't think there was anything wrong with that. It was just kind of... You thought it was a right passage. Yeah, yeah. I thought it was just normal. That's what I thought. Because, you know, I'd sort of say it to my friends and be like, oh, I'm not sure if I want to do all this. They'd be like, oh, don't worry, we hate school too. And I'd be like, well, that's not my thing. My thing was like... My thing wasn't even school. My thing was just life. Mm. You know? At one point, I really... You know, it took me a while to get over it, but, you know, I really just didn't think life was meant for me. Mm. And you talk about this this almost... this suicide pact that you made with yourself without your nan knowing that if she died, you would die. You know, what was going through your head when, when you made this, you know, and, and did you feel like this was... this was what you wanted to do at that moment? You know, was it directly linked to the bullying, you would say? So, um, obviously, a bit more background. My nan um, went in remission at the end of year 10... But then over Christmas in year 11, she got diagnosed with a brain tumour, pancreatic cancer, and her original, original cancer in her neck had come back. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it was a poor prognosis. Mm. They said six months at best. And, you know, it was weird. But in my head, I never really thought she was going to die. You know, you just sort of have it in your doesn't head. that you know, It yeah. didn't seem real, you know. The care, the level of care had stepped up. But, you know, even though... She wasn't necessarily responsive and spent a lot of her day asleep. I still just couldn't see how I could possibly live my life and get through it if I didn't have Mm. her to sort of share it all with. Mm. So I suppose in my head I thought, you know what, I'm going to keep going for as long as she's alive. Mm. And for as long as she's alive, I'm going to do what I have to do. I'm going to get through the days. I'm going to do my homework and I'm just going to roll with it. Mm. And then I thought, but as soon as she dies, I'm just not doing this anymore. Mm. And you you said there how your nan died shortly before you took your GCSE exams, which I guess is a is a tumultuous period for any sort of 15, 16-year-old. But you actually said that, and perhaps this is probably something that maybe a few people have, have, have experienced as well, that you felt free after it. Just tell the listeners what you meant by that, and as some might find it a bit odd thing to say. I mean, yeah, I suppose it is a bit of an odd thing to say in a weird but way. But it's a natural but, yeah. thing to say as well. I think I was doing so much. Mm. Like, I know I've already described a bit more of, like, what I've done as a carer, but, you know, imagine that times ten. 
mm. in like the three months before my nan died. Like it was crazy, and also you know, we all know how much work you get when you do your GCSEs. I mean, comparatively to adult life, not as much. Not but a lot, yeah, but at, at the, the time, time, yeah, at the time, at it's all comparative, time, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, at the time, it is literally the most work you've ever had to do, and you think that oh my. So I was doing homework. I was getting up at like five o'clock in the morning to do my homework, and I didn't have to. That's your anxiety talking, by the way. Yeah, but you know, <laughs> I, I definitely getting, didn't get up at five a.m. to but do But I was getting up homework. at five o'clock in the morning to do my homework because I knew well I couldn't do it after school. Yeah, because and of I knew, course, course. and I knew that if I didn't do it before school or in my lunchtime or at break, then I would get detention, and I couldn't mm. do detention after school. Mm. So my thing was like, I have to be on time to school, so I don't do late detention, and I have to do my homework for certain teachers. Mm. Some teachers were nice, and when they found out, they were like, oh, it's okay, you know do it if you can but if not no stress whereas some teachers were just like well it's not my problem you just need to make sure you do it so I think overnight you know over the night when my nan died basically I woke up the next day and I thought shit I haven't got to do anything mm. I haven't got another person depending on me I haven't got anything to do apart from what I want to do I think I just spent the next day watching TV mm. and it, you know it was weird because I hadn't sat down and properly watched TV in months, mm. you know. Your nan had obviously been a massive part of your life for so long, but also been a massive responsibility for you as well. Um, as well as, you know, bullies exploiting her pain and her mm. treatment uh, for a target of abuse to you. What were your emotions like, you know, as you went through that grieving process? Um, I think at the beginning, I was weirdly calm. Mm. But I think a lot of that might have had to do with the pact that I made with myself... You know, that was kind of giving me a new level of calm and kind of keeping me grounded. Mm. Whereas afterwards, that whole summer was just spent all of my family members trying to distract each other. Mm. Like, you know, my mum took me and, like, my dad says we went to Disneyland, like, in Florida for two weeks. And, like, we went away again to Spain for a week. We just kept going on holiday Mm. and making sure we didn't have to be at home as much as possible. But, you know, when I started college, it was weird. It was, like, going back... And, you know, it's only six months later. Mm. So within six months, I haven't really spoke about it with anybody. Mm. I've masked kind of all of my feelings. I've lived in, I've stayed in a familiar environment, Mm. you know. When you leave school, it's kind of a weird stage for everybody leaving school, going into college. Mm. But for me, I was like, I'm in a place where I don't know if I can trust any of these teachers. I don't have one friend in this place when I first started. And, you know, I think my moods were just so up and down. Mm. Grief is such a complex and personal emotion. And we say a lot on this poppery that perhaps it's more stigmatised than mental health. Is that something you'd agree with? I think it is. I think, you know, if I say, if I was to say to them, oh, yeah, I struggle with, like, my anxiety generally, people would be a lot more understanding and say, oh, that must really affect you every day. Whereas with grief, a lot of the problem, I think, is with the milestones. Mm. So it's almost like, oh, you're OK to be sad on Christmas, their birthday... And like the year and the year anniversary of their mm. death, and then after that, it's kind of just stuck to them three days. Mm. And if you're sad on another day, everyone's it's sort of like, oh well, it's not the right day for it. Life goes on, kind of thing. Mm. Whereas actually, when you've lost someone, it doesn't go on for a while. It's kind of like life goes on, but you stay in one place. Mm. And after your sixteenth birthday, you you talk about your your third suicide attempt, which I presume was was linked to the suicide pact mm. that you made. If you could, just tell me about, you know, the events that led up to it, sort of what was going through your head at the time and the moment in the article it, it states as well when you decided not to properly go through with it. 
So, you know, I've already spoken a little bit about it, like the kind of the calmness mm-hmm. that I felt. And, you know, I just thought a part of me was like, oh, well, I owe it to my mum to turn 16, mm-hmm. you know, which, you know, I know doesn't seem like it has much of a thought process behind it. But at the time, that was really my thing. It's like, well, I'm going to turn 16. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, I'm going to do what I have to do. Because, mm-hmm. you know, I was all, I was very torn where there was part of me that, you know, wanted to just die so I could be with my nan. And then there was part of me that thought, fucking hell, if I die, my nan's going to look going to fucking kill me mm. herself. Yeah. Do you know what she's going to come back from the grave. Yeah, yeah. she's going to be like, what the fuck are you doing? So I was already torn about it, debating it. And, yeah. Looking back, what do you think it was that, that spurred you to stop and, and, and go out go out of your room and hug your granddad? Do you think it was fear? Do you think it was sort of your conscience telling you to stop? For me, I think when I came close to it for, well, properly the second or third time, but could have well been the hundredth time as I was very close to doing it a lot, I felt like it was the last sort of shred of my self-worth sort of telling me to stop. Do you do you feel any resonance with that? What no, was sort of going through you know your what, head? You know what, yeah, I do. It was really the last bit of me that actually felt like me, mm. saying that, you know, you, you probably don't want to do this. Mm. And I think I really sort of had that debate about, oh, do I do it, do I not? Mm. I don't want to be here, but then there's a part of me that does. And I think, you know, sometimes you, just, you don't feel human in that moment. You like, don't feel you start, like a human anymore, yeah, do you? You, you kind of no. don't feel, feel like... a husk. Like, yeah, yeah, you kind of don't even feel like you're on Earth anymore. It's a mm. really weird, out-of-body type mm. experience. And I think just hearing something as human as my granddad stumbling up the stairs, mm. you know, because he needed to get something out of his room, mm. just really brought me back down and made me think that you know it's, it's obviously not my time yet mm. and if he is listening and we'll, you can choose her whoever you want to listen mm. to this pod and share it with but if he is listening to this pod what would you say to your granddad I see it's, it's weird because I don't even think he realises what I was going to do mm. I think he just thought I was sad mm. and you know I think like to my fa- I'm always like sorry about it but then my but you family, shouldn't be sorry about yeah, it, though. Yeah, I know. And, like, I do know that my family was like, well, you know, you don't have to be sorry about it. Mm. It kind of... It is what it is. Mm. But, you know, you still kind of have that guilt about even mm. thinking it, especially as, you know, my mum and my aunt had just lost their mum mm. a month ago. You know, my granddad had just lost his wife a month before that. Mm. And then, you know, so a bit of you does feel kind of selfish for, you know, even thinking about it. Looking forward now, Brie, how do you think you'll use these experiences you've gone through to help you navigate your way in life? Because at the moment you're 21? 20? 20? Nearly 20. Nearly 20. Nearly 21. Nearly 21, God, God, that's (laughs) quite young. Um, What have you learned about yourself and what have you learned that you can help others with that you can use in later life? I've really learned that, you know, this is so cliche, that I'm stronger than I thought I was. Mm. Because there's so many times where I thought, oh, I can't do this day, I actually cannot physically get out of bed and do it but I've still got up I've got dressed and I've done it Mm. and I think you know once you kind of hit the bottom of the barrel low you know it's not that difficult to feel the highs Mm. do you know what I mean and to enjoy things a little more I think especially when you've been at one end of the spectrum for so long I think now you know if I'm having a difficult day I have something to compare it to Mm. I think all right I'm having a bad day but we're not quite there yet Mm. I think it's also useful for me and you know, in my friends as well, that I'm quite good at spotting their behaviours. Mm. So, you know, because I know what that kind of self-loathing, you know, suicidal behaviours look like, it's helpful with me because if I think I can start to feel myself if I'm sort of heading that way and I can check myself and be like, okay, what do we need to do 
to make you feel better. Mm. But, you know, same goes for me and my friends, I suppose. Mm. And how have you changed your sort of thought processes around from the time that you had those thoughts to now? So say if you were in that moment Mm. back then, you had like a cycle of a thought or you had like a self-esteem spiral or whatever. If you ever feel that happening now to you, how do you sort of recognise it? How do you show up to it? And how do you sort of change that that process? Yeah. Um... I think for me, I mean, it took years of yeah, work. Yeah, of course, it took years <laughs> you know, and years for me as it's well. It's taken years and years and, you know, it's still something I'm learning how to do now. I think that gradual rebuild of your self-esteem to be like, okay, I'm good at things without it needing to rely on another person mm-hmm. to be there. So, you know, I'm really good at looking after my nan. But when she died, that was kind of taken away and I was a bit mm-hmm. like, shit, I don't think I'm good at anything anymore. Mm-hmm. But, you know, going back to it and just be reminding yourself that, you know, I am good at stuff it's okay to have bad days. Mm. You know, sometimes you have one bad day and I used to think... Destroys you, doesn't it? Think, yeah. oh, I think I'm going to, like, go back to all of that. But actually, yeah. you're not. You're just having a bad day. You're a little bit sad and sometimes that's okay. Mm. You've obviously survived an ordeal that a lot of other people, I don't think, would be able to handle as well as you. There may be people who are listening who've gone through similar experiences or who are listening to this pod or who are going through it right now, what message would you give to them? Um, just to always believe in that little voice in the back of your head that tells you not to do it. You know, because I think sometimes it's so, not easy, but you know, when you've got lots of voices in your head telling you that you're not good enough or that, you know, all of these negative things and they're kind of reinforcing that, you know, it's difficult not to listen to them mm. because they're so overwhelming. But sometimes it's good to take a take a day, take an hour, take a week for yourself and really, really think about it. Mm. And to obviously to open up, to talk and to vent because I think that's what really helps me out in my whole process. Mm. And obviously, you know, your nan's no longer with us and I'd like to think somewhere that she's she's listening to this pod. So she hasn't been able to directly see how you've changed, how you've grown, how you've started writing for Venn, how you've been able to share your experiences and help others. If she was listening to this pod, what do you think you'd say to her? See, I always say if I could ever say anything to my nan again, it would be sorry. Hmm. Because, Why is that? you know, you know, you just, I just feel bad that the only stage of my life she really, stages of my life she really knew me and was a baby where I couldn't do anything a young child where I was probably irritating and quite demanding and then as a moody teenager who just used to stomp about the house but then kind of be happy sometimes mm. you know because she always used to say sorry to me mm. and be like oh I'm sorry I'm so unwell mm. and I used to be like oh you know you don't need to be sorry but mm. I think I would probably be equally as sorry back I'm sure she'd probably say thank you to you to, uh, to be honest yeah. We alluded to it in the last topic, Brie, but one thing that you were bullied for was for being gay or not as, in inverted commas, feminine as other girls. And I'd probably be right in saying that you were getting called gay before you might have even realised that you were gay. Is that true? Yeah. Okay, so first of all, let's set the, set the scene. When did you first realise that you had feelings for other girls and, and how did you react to it? I mean... A lot of this is obviously retrospective, but mm. I can look back and think as young as seven or eight, I knew I wasn't like other girls. Mm. You know, in primary school, everyone's playing kiss chase. 
you know, and they'd be like, oh, run, the boys are going to kiss you. And I mm. think, I'm going to run because I don't want them to... Like, <laughs> Do you want to run away? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to run, run away. Run away out of this game. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. I didn't want them to touch me or kiss mm. me. I thought it was gross. Like, mm. boys to me were just, like, for playing football with mm. and for, like, having a laugh with when the girls were being boring. Like, mm. not for anything more than that. And I remember being seven... And one of my classmates, who was probably also seven at the time, saying to me, oh, you don't walk like a girl. And being like, you know, you can't be friends with the girls if you don't walk like a girl. I remember turning around and being like, I don't want to walk like a girl. And just being like, and she was like, well, the boys won't like you if you don't walk like a girl. And I'm going to be like, I don't care. And I think now I look back and think, I really didn't care if the boy, what the boys thought of how I walked. Because mm. I didn't want to, I didn't want the boys to like me in that way, which is kind of what they were alluding mm. to. And then if you could, just tell me about, you know, how being gay forms part of your identity, how you interact with society and the world around, around you. And also, perhaps maybe in secondary school when it happened or perhaps later when you might have had that first experience with a girl or you sort of realised that, OK, this is not just like... A, you might Your mind might have thought, OK, it's not just a phase now. It's actually mm-hmm. like, this is, this is what I feel... You know, and this is this is it's not mm. going to change. I think it really took the whole of secondary school for me mm. to kind of just accept it. I mean, I pretty much had a boyfriend for the whole of secondary school, but we have to use the word boyfriend. Was it in, a platonic way? Yeah, yeah, in like the lightest way you can possibly use the term boyfriend, right. because that even that's a generous term that I mm. even say that now. But you know, it, it was, was an unpaid internship. Yeah, basically, <laughs> it was like I was tra- I was like I was being trained for a job I didn't want. It was just like you know, it was never going to happen. I remember still being like twelve, thirteen, and being like, yeah, this just isn't for me. But then not being comfortable enough to not have one because it was kind of mm. like my safety net. Because mm. if someone was like, oh, you're a lesbian, I could be like, well, now I've got a boyfriend. So it was like a defence mechanism. Yeah, okay. And then I could sort of use that because you know, when they're thirteen, fourteen. People don't think, like, well, 13, 14-year-olds in my school weren't like, oh, well, you can still be gay, maybe you're just using it as, like, they were just sort of like, well, you know, they just sort of accepted it and was like, all right, then she's got a boyfriend, but everyone still sort of made comments. So the the homophobia was that entrenched? Yeah. Yeah, They just kind of couldn't, they saw the way I dressed. I mean, I wore, I didn't never wore a skirt to school. Mm. I always wore, like, a short sleeve shirt shirt with, like, my tie and, like, Mm. my shirt was always untucked. We had a pair of trainers on. You didn't blend in that well, did you? I really didn't blend in that well, you know. Ginger hair, glasses. I just, yeah. I wasn't made to fit in at school. And, you know, I think even when I was, like, 15, I think that's when I really, really knew and I really understood. But Mm. I think because I was already going through such a difficult time, Mm. I was kind of like, you know what, this is a a Pandora's box to open Mm. another time. When you uh, when you look back on that, are you quite proud of yourself that you didn't conform, even though you perhaps wanted to, and perhaps you're being bullied for it? Were you proud that you st- stuck true to your yourself? You know, you dressed how you wanted to, even if it was within the confines of a uniform, <laughs> but you still stayed true to yourself. Yeah, I think I am. Like, I went through that stage when I was like 13 years old, where the only thing I wore was a tracksuit, mm. and if I wasn't in my school uniform, my pajamas, I was literally in a tracksuit and a pair of trainers. I remember we used to have non-uniform days and, like, each class used to do a thing where they voted, like, the best-dressed boy and the best-dressed girl and then the worst-dressed. And, you know, I remember at the time it used to really confuse me because they'd always do the best-dressed boy first and he'd always be wearing a tracksuit similar to what I was wearing. (laughs) And every year there was a bit of me that thought, especially at the beginning of secondary school, I thought, oh, yeah, you know, we're wearing similar clothes, maybe I'll get it. But I was always (laughs) voted worst-dressed girl. I remember just thinking, like... 
but I'm wearing the same clothes as him. What's the difference? But then obviously now I'm older, I'm like, okay, fair enough. Like, you know, they weren't a big fan of girls wearing tracksuits. Mm. But you know what? I am proud as that like, I just dressed how I wanted to dress because mm. I thought tracksuits were comfortable. They were practical. I like to play football and keep warm. They were the best things to wear. Mm. You know, a lot of the girls in my year used to always like come in on like tight pair of jeans, boots with like a little heel on mm. them, like low cut top. And I just stereotypical. Think that, yeah, and I think yeah. even now I don't think I could dress like that. Mm. So I'm quite proud that I didn't try and force my 13 or 14 year old self to dress in a way that would have made me feel quite uncomfortable. Mm. And and what age did you did you come out and? What happened when you did? Was it was it a friend that you told? Was it your mum? Was it was it maybe you know a neutral arbiter who you felt you could trust? Um. So the first few people I came out to were friends. I'm 17, which is quite late considering. I mean, how there's, long... there's no age. There's no you know no, no age is a, is a bad age. Considering how long I knew for, 17 probably was a little bit late. I think I kind of just had to take a year because you've got to think between 16 and 17. I was trying to process like the first year of my nan not being there. Mm. So, you know, even for that... Took a back seat. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) in my head it was always like, oh, I just don't want to stress my mum out. I think Mm. my mum just needs... Bit of a bombshell as well, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. and I just thought, especially where I had a boyfriend, and I thought, okay, then we just, like, progress. Let's just get our lives back Mm. to normal as much as we can. And then they'll kind of pick it up later. So I told a couple of mates. They were pretty cool about it. I told they them. know already, or did they yeah, surprised? Everyone, or? No, definitely not surprised. Okay. People were like, yeah, what, where, what's the city? <laughs> one of my first friends I told her, I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm bi. And she was like, are you sure? And I was like, well, what's that meant to mean? She was like, well, I'm more shocked that you've just said that than if you were to say you're gay. <laughs> and I was like, because I sort of said it to test the water. And I was like, okay, yeah, I am gay. She was like, yeah, don't try that bullshit for everyone else. So I think everyone knows. And I was like... Oh, right, yeah. So then after that, I was a bit more confident saying it. Few people went a little bit funny with me after and didn't kind of talk to me the same. Well, that was your good filter then. Then you knew... Yeah, then basically, you knew how to it was, it them was out. quite a good way to sort of suss out who I was actually good friends with and who I wasn't. If I said it and then people went a bit funny, I could be like, all right, then, you're not my friend. Mm. Next. Uh, um, and what impact did, did coming out have on you, you know, when you experienced positive or negative reactions to it? Did that have an effect on your mental health, you know... Did you see it as quite a seminal moment or did you see it as something fairly insignificant at the time because of the reactions that you were having to it? No, I think it was always more important to me than what it was to other people. Mm. I think everyone else was kind of just a bit like, oh, okay then. Like, remember when I told my granddad and my granddad was a bit like, he did a big sigh of relief and he's like, your nan was right. I was like, what does that mean then? <laughs> and he was like, oh, well, you know, he was like, when you had the, he said, when you was with that boy, he's like, she was always saying that, nah, she ain't going to marry a boy, she's going to marry a woman. And my granddad always used to be like, to her, don't be silly. And my nan was like, nope, if she marries a boy, something's gone wrong in this world. <laughs> so, you know, it was kind of already known, I think, I wouldn't even say negative reactions, but you know when someone's just a bit shocked and caught off guard by what mm. you've said, especially when I told my mum. So I didn't tell my so mum. So she was shocked. Yeah. Yeah. So I didn't tell my mum until a year later when I was eighteen, just before I went to uni. I say mm. went to uni. I still live at home. Mm. Just before I started uni, mm. it's probably better. And I was just like, oh, I'm gonna go on a date next week. And she was like, oh, that's good. You ain't been on a date for a while. Where are you going? And I was like, oh, I'm going to cinema to see Deadpool. She was like, fucking. Paul, you hate superheroes, and I was like, oh, you know, the um person. I sort of said the person I'm seeing really likes them. She was like, well, don't change yourself for no boy. I was like, well, I won't change myself for a boy, but I might for a girl. And bearing in mind, she just that was the moment. Yeah, Yeah. and bearing in mind, she just come home from a 15-hour shift at the hospital she works at. Mm. So I didn't pick my time. Well, she turned around. She was like, oh, oh, 
oh. And I was like, yeah. She was like, oh, fucking hell. And she was like, you do. And then she even said that she was like, I need a drink. And I was like, all right. I mean, I didn't pick my mum as a nurse, so, you know, maybe ambushing her after mm. a long day at work wasn't my finest hour. But, you know, and I think at the time, I took that really personally and thought, well, she's got a problem with it. Mm. She's shocked. But actually, sometimes people just need time to process things. And I think for my mum, because I had a boyfriend, you know, she probably thought, well, boyfriend's boyfriend. Mm. Whereas, you know, everyone else was a bit like, yeah, a boyfriend. Cool, yeah, she's got inverted a boyfriend. commas. Whereas yeah. my mum was like, well, she says she's got a boyfriend, then she's got a boyfriend. So I think for me to actually say it to my mum, it just took her a while to process it. Mm. Whereas now she's like, you know, totally on board and she's fine with it. I mean, mm. she was always fine with it. But. Mm. And, and after you came out, what were those first weeks like? You know, was it was it sort of liberating? Did you did you act any differently than you were prior to it? Just tell me about that initial period. It was nice not having to keep pretending that the per- people I was seeing are not people as in multiple at the same time, but, like, the different dates I was going on that were with boys. Because mm. it's really weird when, like, you're trying to talk about a he, or, like, yeah, we went to cinema and, like he held my hand and it's just mm. like because it makes me cringe because I think well no he's holding my hand mm. you know so it was kind of nice to be able to just sort of tell stories as they were actually happening mm. instead of always having to you know sort of filter out the more important details mm. and as you've sort of navigated your way into sort of gay community whether it be nightlife or social events or whatever how do you find within the gay mates that you have, how do you find mental health is perceived and, and, and talked about? Is it something you've been, been able to discuss with, you know, fellow, um, you know, girls or boys in, 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 LG, in the LGBT community? Or perhaps are there different stigmas that, that aren't discussed in the wider conversation around mental health? No, I think it's definitely something I've discussed with my friends who are gay. But it's weird because we just all have an ongoing joke that we've all got a mental health issue at some point. Right. We've all said that, you know, if you've gone through secondary school and people thought you were gay or you seemed gay to them, then, yeah, you're going to have left secondary school Mm. with some kind of mental scars. Mm. It's just kind of impossible not to. I think, not necessarily stigmas, but sometimes it turns into a bit of a competition. Right. Where you'll say to someone, oh, yeah, I was bullied at school, and someone will be like, why, I was beaten up at school. And someone's like, why, I left school and I was homeschooled (laughs) because I couldn't stand it, you know. So it's not necessarily stigmas, but I guess... Just it's probably good to remove like, that competition at some point, isn't it? Yeah. Because that's not really you know, healthy. It's not about the competition. Yeah. It doesn't matter who had it worse or who didn't because everything's so relative. Mm. For me, my mental health issues or conditions, I should say, certainly don't make up the entirety of my identity, but they have certainly shaped it in many ways. Equally, I would assume that neither does your sexuality make up the entirety of who you are. Why is it important that we make that distinction clear for both the mental health community and the gay community? I think it's important because sometimes, you know, you never want someone to look at you mm. and be like, oh, she's the gay one or she's the one, he's the one with anxiety, mm. you know, because that's not who you are. I always think, you know, of everything I do, that's pr- probably the least interesting part of me. Mm. You know, it's that, oh, it's just another thing. Because if I was straight, it wouldn't be a big thing. People wouldn't be going around going, fucking hell, she's straight. So it's like, mm. well, why has it got to be a big thing the other way around? Mm. And for any of the listeners who might be struggling to come to terms with their own sexuality, whether it be bi or gay or, or whatever it may be, what would you say to them to reassure them that it's okay to be themselves? They don't have to come out. They, they can if they want to, but they don't have to come out when they, they, when, when they want to. But it's okay to be themselves and accept who they are. And why is that important? I think it's important just because, you know, there's just another you kind of don't realise there's, like, another level of life waiting Mm. for you. You kind of get so used to putting yourself 
in a box and feeling like you have to act straight or, you know, act in a certain way so people don't make comments. But I think, you know, for ev- everyone gets to the stage where they feel like they can be a bit freer and live their truth, I guess, at different points. But I think once you get to that stage, don't rush get into that stage. You know, kind mm. of take your time, you know, and just, you know, be sure that you're comfortable mm. before you start telling people because there's nothing worse than telling people before you're 100% comfortable with it because then I find then the comments that people make they kind of don't hurt as much because if you've got the idea that well I'm comfortable with who I am and I'm happy then it's a lot easier to just bounce the comments back mm. you wrote about your experience as a gay woman in a poem for event called kissing girls is okay unless you're a girl as well and I'd recommend everyone to to read that when they have a chance we'll put a link to that in the pod description why did you feel inspired to write that? You know, was the title directly linked to your own experiences or did you want to sort of write it as a message to other young gay girls or boys? Um, a little bit of both. I think it was influenced by a few dates that I've been on where mm. it wasn't necessarily about kissing girls but more about kissing them in public, mm. you know, and just not even just kissing but, like, things that you don't even perceive to be a big deal like holding hands, mm. putting your arm around someone, walking mm. too close to somebody, mm. you know... We're just kind of being picked up on. I mean, me and my ex-girlfriend, we used to hold hands when we used to walk through the streets of London. The amount of looks you used to get and the mm. amount of stairs you used to get. Was it based on be... different areas of London or was it just London in general? Central London. like down oh, okay. Down the yeah. South Bank or like through Soho in the daytime. and people Through Soho? Think, Soho in the daytime. That doesn't, that, I can't believe that. No. Through Soho you got so, looks. Yeah. The, the, the veritable yeah. hub of gay culture in London. Yeah. I honestly think in the daytime... Yeah, because you're wow. holding hands. If That's people, really eye-opening to me. You know, it's really something. Like, I mean, I've walked through Soho in the evening and had trouble before, like, me and my friends, and, you know, had people call us names. I had trouble on Pride with people calling us names in the Sainsbury's at Tottenham Court Road, you know. It's really And just things like that. And it's so weird how in London, you know, these two worlds sort of coexist, but they're just kind of not connected. It's like you're in one little bit in Soho and, yeah, it's all great and we can be liberal and as gay as we want, but then mm-hmm. you go back on the main road and all of a sudden you're like, oh, shit, maybe I look a bit too gay today. Mm. Like, it's really weird. So I think a lot of that inspires the poem and just this whole feeling of, you know, you feel different and sometimes you can feel like, oh, you have to hold their hand more to sort of prove a point and be political about it. But then... Mm. That's it shouldn't be point. too political, but should the point, it? But then the point of being in love or, you know, even being with somebody isn't to be political, mm. isn't to use somebody. I mean, it started off as, when Stonewall and all that, we should yeah, say. But it started it, off like that, but the thing is now, I'd like you'd like to think that we've come far enough mm. that actually it should just be you're holding hands because you're holding hands, not holding hands because I'm to make a point, a point and all to that, every yeah. single person. You know, you make a really good point. I wanted to just touch on what you said in, in, that, in that previous question when you said you know, maybe we're dressing a bit too gay. Do you think that's a little sort of internalised anxiety tick? Definitely. Yeah. I mean, you know, I'm quite comfortable in that I'll put on, like, a polo shirt and a pair of jeans on a night out Mm. and I'll be like, yeah, I look good. I might Mm. not be dressed like the other girls, but, yeah, I look good. But then there's something vulnerable about being on a train on your way going out or coming home from something Mm. and just thinking, if something kicks off, I would be fucked. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Or when you're walking, you know, when you're in the club, it's all fun to be have, like, you know, rainbows painted on your face and be covered in glitter mm. and, you know, be dressed however you want to dress and have, like, especially on Pride and have all your Pride badges on. Mm. But then you kind of leave that area of London that's partying and then you still have to go home. Mm. You know, I find especially the closer I get to home, 
the more likely it is to kick off. Mm. And does that make you sort of develop... Just trying to think of the right word to put this. Um, not safety nets, but sort of like processes where you go, OK, if I'm in this place, I'll check where the exits are or I'll check where, you know, the nearest doors are. If, I'll, if I'm in a space, you know, it's got to be where there's, you know, X X and Y here so I know oh, yeah. that if, if it kicks off, I can get out. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. I stand at um, certain parts of the platforms at certain train stations, mm. especially one, you know, my local station is Cannon Town. So if mm. I'm at Cannon Town and I'm coming home, I make sure I always stand in the same place because mm. it's the closest one to the stairs on the escalators on the lift so I like mm. to think okay I've got three different ways to get out mm. and there's an emergency exit around the back mm. so you know I do think that like, if I'm getting on a train in central London I try and make if I'm going to get on a carriage and it's just got a group of young boys on there or a group of I don't know anyone who looks like they might be a bit in a bit of a rowdy mood mm. or about to kick off I just won't get on it I'll mm. get on the next train and you won't go down to a different, like the carriage all the way down to the end or anything? You just, you just won't get on it? No, I just won't get on it at all. Okay. One topic which you were quite keen to discuss, Brie, is your experiences of homophobia and education, both secondary school and in, in university. We've talked about your experiences in secondary school, but just talk to me about what you've encountered in university so far. University's probably been on the same level as secondary school, actually, which mm. shocks a lot of people, especially my mum, actually. You know, my mum's big thing is like, well, you know, you'd think everyone would be quite grown up. You've got to quite an educated level in your life that you think you would have, you know, better views about things, but or at least more liberal views or know when it is or isn't appropriate to share your opinion. But... um. Yeah, at uni, I've really found that people just kind of feel that they can share whatever opinion they want with no repercussion. So I did a module on inclusion last year, so in my second year at uni, and um, one of the le- one of the lecture series was on sexuality. Mm-hmm. And halfway through it, someone put their hand up and they was like, oh, so um, if someone's gay, does that mean they've got a chromosome defect? And we're just sitting there, and I, I'm sitting there. I've got a few other mates in the class that who I know are gay, but we're not all necessarily sitting together. And we're just all looking at each other like, fuck sake. Because even if it's not directed at you, it still hurts. Do you know mm. what I mean? You're still, you know... I think I am gay, so anything you say about gay people reflects on me. Mm. And did you say anything you know, at the time? I was sort of looking to the lecturer thinking, oh, maybe she'll, ch- yeah. maybe she'll challenge it, but she didn't. She just kind of let it hang there and ended up one of my friends put her hand up and was like, chromosomes only determine like your, your gender and like any genetic problems you may have, mm. not about your sexuality. Mm. And I think a lot of people in my class didn't really understand the concept of sexuality being a choice. Mm. Not, be, well, not being a choice, rather, you know. They kind of thought that you just wake up and, you know, oh, I'm going to be gay. Mm. And then you make a choice. They didn't really understand the fact that you're not just waking up one day and going, oh, I'm going to be gay today. Mm. That'd, be, that'd be a new fun thing to try. Mm. It is just really at the core of who you are. And I think as well at uni, it hasn't helped that, even though the lecturers haven't openly said anything negative, they also haven't done anything to, like, solve the issue. Mm. So, you know, when I went and spoke about it with one of my lecturers, the, you know, the same lecturer who taught that class, her response was like, her actual response was, just because you've made a choice about how you want to live your life, it doesn't mean everyone has to respect it. And, you know, you're like, fucking hell. These are the kind of people... It's quite a backwards view to have yeah. as a university lecturer from a first glance, to be honest. I mean... 
I'm really not really sure how to react to that. I mean, how did you react to it? My response was just like, if you can't understand that sexuality isn't a choice, then actually we shouldn't, I shouldn't be having this conversation with you at all. Mm. And I went and told another lecturer, who obviously had a much better... He was like, I'm so sorry this has happened. Mm. You know, I'm really, you know, really tried to sort it out and really made a big effort to understand it, which mm. was nice. But, you know, it's still difficult when you have such discouraging experiences. Mm. Let's be real, it's 2019 and many people will wonder how on earth this still happens, but it does, doesn't it? It's just, it's crazy. When I say it to people and they're like, what, at university? And I'm like, yeah, it is, yeah, it's crazy. Mm. And now that you're older, do you react differently when you might, say, get a homophobic insult chucked at you, maybe on a night out, on the street by a stranger, or even by someone you know? Um, I think when I was younger, I was a lot more defensive about it. I think a lot Which of Which is also was, natural. Yeah, because I wasn't out. Like, I remember in year seven, someone called me a lesbian. And I just was like, I'm a fucking lesbian. Like, I'm ready to, like, you know, start a fight about it. Like, so they were using it as an insult, basically. Yeah. yeah. Whereas now, if somebody says something, I just think... If it's someone who doesn't know me, I think they're looking at me and they're just deciding what I am without knowing me. Mm. So, actually, I don't know anything about their lives either. They could be the nicest person in the world. Mm. But actually just have a preconceived view about what it means to be gay or about, you know, because I dress like this and I must... Mm. do all of this other stuff that they don't particularly like. So I try not to take it to heart too much. If it's a friend, I do struggle with that. Because you talked about more. that a bit, how you've had some friends who... Well, former friends yeah. who've made certain comments. Yeah, I've had, you know... Without naming names. Without naming names. My most recent one is someone was like... I had my hair down. You know when you get a really bad haircut mm. and it's like my hair wouldn't go in a bun or a ponytail anymore... Mm. Anyone who knows me knows how absolutely devastating that was. <laughs> like, you know, so I had to wear my hair down for uni, you know, and one of my friends turned around to me and was like, Oh, it's like Bree's trying to act a bit more straight and act more like a girl today. And I was like, Sorry, does my hair mean something? Because I thought to me it's just hair on my head. Mm. You know, just because I if I have my hair curled or I have it down, I have it in a bun. It's irrelevant. Mm. It doesn't make me any more or any less gay. Yeah, I mean there obviously are choices that some um, people do because of their identity no, or whatever. Yeah, um, but no, it shouldn't be ever be considered some sort, some sort of like label. Yeah. Um, how did you react to that? At the time, I was just kind of like, okay, because I thought in my head I was like, okay, Matt, you me. Be the adult. Yeah. yeah. In my head, I'm like, be the adult because sometimes there's no point arguing with these people. They mm. have such like a a big thing in their head about, you know, they think they're right and they don't think they're yeah, something offensive. Yeah. And a lot of people, you know, will try and justify offensive things they've said by asking somebody else who's got a similar view to them, <laughs> do you think this thing was offensive? And the person will say, no, I don't. I think that was a fine thing to say. Mm. Which to me, it doesn't matter. If you've offended me, then, you know, you can't justify your offensive comments by asking somebody else because mm. it's none of their business. You haven't offended them. So their view on it is kind of irrelevant mm. so I just kind of went down the path of being like well if you can't understand what you've done wrong then you know we possibly shouldn't be friends at all mm. which you know did cause a big kerfuffle but actually mm. since I've done it I felt so much better for doing it mm. and what more do you think that universities and perhaps other educational institutions need to do to stamp out homophobia not just perhaps amongst sort of writings and lectures and from a sort of academic point of view but I mean more mm. like on the ground in yeah. the university the environment how do, how do you think how do you 
how do you want them to stamp it out and educate people? I think having a proper policy that will actually, you know, protect people. Mm. Because even though sexuality is a protected characteristic, you know, it actually a lot of universities don't have a policy on it. Mm. So when I was going through a lot of the stuff I was going through last year at uni, I was looking to the policies to see if they could help me. And they couldn't because I didn't have one. Mm. So I was like, okay. So basically not having a policy is almost like saying it's okay for it to happen. And I also think, you know, even calling things out is important. Mm. And that's not to tell people that they can't have an opinion or they can't think what they think. Because, of course, you can have an opinion, have an opinion on anything you want. But actually, there's not always an appropriate environment to share it in. And, you know, sometimes you need to acknowledge that if what you're saying isn't helpful or isn't necessary or actually isn't very nice, then, you know, maybe you shouldn't be saying it at all. Mm. And looking forward to the future, do you think that this will be something that you maybe not campaign on, but maybe speak more prominently about, whether it's in work, whether it's just in your personal life? How do you think you'll try and sort of take this forward? Um, I like to think that when I'm a teacher, I mean, obviously, I'll be, hopefully, I'll be a primary Fingers school teacher crossed, yeah. in the next few years. But, you know, I really like to think that I can just show the kids, even without saying it, obviously, that, you know, it's OK to be who you are, that mm. you can dress how you want to dress and that, you know, you can be sort of who you want to be and actually people aren't allowed to say nasty things to you. Mm. And in the same way, you're not allowed to say nasty things to other people. Mm. And just a final point, because it's just, just come, it just popped into my head, actually. The I'm sure you must have seen the demonstrations that were going on outside certain schools in Birmingham, sort of starting to spread across the UK, maybe in pockets. What did you make of that? Honestly, it terrifies me. Mm. Why did it terrify you? Because I think as someone who's going to be a teacher in the next few years, especially a primary school teacher, I just think that, you know, I can, you know, you can always just envision the problem something's going to cause mm. you. You know, if I let my anxiety sort of, you know, run away from me, I can sort of see myself in a job teaching about LGBT education, you know, saying about the fact that I'm gay mm. to kind of normalise it. Loads of kids going home, telling their parents and then me not having a job. And never been able to work in teaching again, which, which is wouldn't happen. You know, which is definitely me running because that's away against from the law. But no, yeah, yeah, but I get, I but get what you know. mean. I get what you mean. And I think as well, you know, Section Twenty Eight wasn't that long ago, so people don't know what Section Twenty Eight is. It's um the rule, well, law that Margaret Thatcher brought in against the promotion of homosexuality. Promotion of homosexuality, which is basically commas, yeah. you know, no, no gay teachers, not mm. talking about it, just kind of saying that it was wrong and mm. guiding Removing kids them away from existence, from it. basically. But, you know, Section yeah. 28 only got lifted in 2004, mm. which, you know, is relatively still quite recent, really. Like, you know, gay marriage has only really been legalised within the last 10 years, I think, mm. if that. You know, Northern Ireland's only just legalised mm. it. It's only something that in a lot of places is just starting to be, like, introduced and kind of come into play so mm. I think the fact that this is happening so kind of recently I guess you'd say after section 28 is quite worrying because it mm. just shows that we've still got quite a long way to go another topic which we've discussed a little bit um so far Brie, is your writing, but I just wanted to chat a, a bit more about it in detail and the impact the sort of art of writing has on you. So firstly, what got you into writing and why did you enjoy it? Um, my English teacher used to make us do this thing where he'd hand out like random pictures that he had of like 
people just staring into like the distance mm. but they'd all have like different facial expressions and you know he'd see if you finished your work early you'd be like oh go and grab a picture and write a poem it had nothing to do with like GCSE course we were studying mm. but it was just to get us to like English for fun mm. and I read the first time I did it I found it really difficult probably because I picked up a happy face and I was like well I don't think I can write anything happy but you know after that I just used to pick up you know the more moody faces the more upset faces mm. and I found myself being able to be like well picturing a story that the man might have had or what the woman might have had and being able to sort of write a poem about it and I suppose from there it went on from instead of writing it about a make-believe person staring off into the distance I started writing about myself and my own experiences Mm. and what effect does writing have on you is it cathartic is it relaxing you know tell me a bit about that process I think it's definitely cathartic I mean I think sometimes I have so many things going on in my head that if I didn't write in some capacity I totally feel, I think my brain might possibly explode mm. because it's like I just love that there's so many different ways I can express something so if mm. there's something I want to talk about but not on a large scale then I can write a poem if there's something you know I want to talk about in lots and lots of detail then I can write like an article mm. or like write a prose about it and if there's something that I just want to completely half make up but then half use my own experiences in, then I can write like a story. Mm. And do you plan to write more articles and poetry in the future as your sort of life develops and you get a sort of better control of your mental health, do you think? No, yeah, definitely. I think, you know, when I first wrote my article for Vent, it was the first time I'd ever written like a proper article for something. Mm. And I look back at it and I think, wow, I actually wrote that quite well, Mm. you know, so I'm quite impressed with myself for writing it as well as I did but I think no as I leave uni it's definitely something that I want to keep you know doing on the side I always submit poetry to you know different magazines and stuff mm. occasionally it gets published but yeah and when it comes to like creative writing is this something you partake in at all and, and do you perhaps given your experiences as a gay one do you perhaps write in gay gay characters as well yeah, you know what I do? Sometimes I've found that when I'm reading books, especially a lot of the classics that I like to read, no, there's not really any gay characters. There's not a lot, is there? No. No, and I think you just... Sometimes representation is so important, especially when you're a child or you're a teenager and you can actually see that character that you identify with and think, oh, yeah, that's like me. Like, I remember when I was younger, especially when I was a teenager, I used to half-identify with Cinderella who was, like, doing all the housework but then not getting any of the fun. But then I thought, all Cinderella wants is a fucking dress and that's not what I want. And a man. Yeah, so all Cinderella wanted was a dress and a man and I think, well, you couldn't get further away from that, you know, than what I want. So, you know, I think it's always good to have characters that represent people from different backgrounds. So I like to write a lot about, you know, especially creatively, I like to have get, make sure I've got at least one gay character mm. in sort of every story I write, make sure that, you know... I've got people who do different things, so I like to write things about someone going through grief, mm. someone who's a young carer, just actual experiences that I've got, but maybe mixing different aspects of my personality into it. Mm. And when you are writing about these characters, do you, what are your feelings on how gay characters are sort of portrayed in TV and popular culture? You know, a lot of the time writers will maybe allude to it or they won't make it that obvious and then some writers will make it pretty obvious you know because they're in relationships and all that sort of stuff what are your feelings on it i prefer the more obvious ones because i think if you want to make someone gay 
just saying that they're gay. Mm. Shouldn't have to be like a secret or like we're dancing <laughs> around it. I'm not a big fan of like, you know how JK Rowling's sort of done it retrospectively and said, yes, well, Dumbledore's gay. It's like, is he? Because he wasn't for like all the films, mm. you know? So it's kind of like, you know, representation is good, but not representation just because you feel like you have to jump on the bandwagon of it. Do you it. think that she... Do you give her any sort of kudos for it, or do you think it, do you think she was doing it from a good place at least? I think she was doing it from a good place, and this is the thing you have to point out: is a lot of people try and do it from a good place, mm. and I think a lot of people maybe think that alluding to it or having a bit of mystery around it is kind of better than not having it at all. Mm. Whereas actually, a really well-written gay character would probably go down a lot better mm. with a lot of people. And how do you think you'll look to develop your writing in the future? You know, and even for your professional career. Um. Writing is always something that I've loved to do on the side. Sometimes I have it in my head where I'm like, oh, one day I'm going to be a writer and a poet. But, you know, that's quite a, you know, an out there thought. But, you know, I think especially while I'm teaching, I think the kids that I work with will probably give me so much, so many ideas of things that I could write about and only inspire me even further. Mm, and when you end up teaching, which hopefully you will, and perhaps you, you help children to write and, and write creatively... How do you think you'll do it? And how do you think it'll have an impact on you to see your your work and your your teachings help that person to, to create and be inspired? Mm. I think a lot of the time in schools, well, especially when I was in school, they would tell you exactly what you had to write about. Mm. Whereas I think as kids become older, it's so important to give them a little bit of freedom and write about something that they actually care about. Because, you know, if it's about a character that you can relate to and a situation that you've been in, you're going to write it a little bit better, aren't you? Then let's say something you've never experienced before because I guess a bit of the imagination is kind of helped because you've experienced some of it. So then you don't have as much that you need to think up. Mm. And I think I just can't wait to, you know, mark books and see kids write all their little stories about things they care about. Mm. I think if teachers were listening to this, they'd be kind of warning against the, the, the you looking forward to marking. But yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, just going back to that point when you said about sort of characters in popular culture, what 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 more do you want from from represent in regards to representation in popular culture in TV programs in in books and whatever? Because you know people can knock Marvel films a lot, but mm. they're trying at least. Um, you've got a lot of TV series who are now putting in more gay characters and not just gay men, but also gay women. Mm. What what more do you think you'd you'd want? Um. It's sometimes, a big question. Yeah, sometimes but, yeah. I worry that I want too much, mm. you know, and, you know, it is a process and it isn't something that's just going to happen overnight and mistakes will be made. But I think it's important to have gay characters that are doing something other than being gay. Because, you know, sometimes people are just there as, like, the filler role and it's like, yeah, I've got a boyfriend. Or a stereotype. Yeah, and it's the gay guy who's yeah. a bit camp and the comic relief sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I think moving away from stereotypes, you know, it'd be great to see, you know a gay woman portrayed who, you know, isn't your typical butch kind of lesbian, you know, and just to see different versions of different identities being, mm. like, sort of portrayed and having more of a purpose than just being there to be gay and to, you know, sort of tick that box. Mm. We wander down cobble streets Then retire to tie Our final topic of conversation, Brie, and it's one that I have with all of my special guests... Hopefully it's a bit of a light sort of relief. Maybe maybe we'll go into a bit deeper stuff, who knows. Uh, it's a general natter about our mental health. So firstly, how would you say your mental health is in the moment? Um, I would say it's all right. Mm. It's not as good as it 
could be. But mm-hmm. I think a lot of that is down to... I'm in my third year of uni. You know, the workload has definitely gone up. My mum's just had another baby. So I'm now living with a three-year-old and a, wow. and a four-week-old. So you might be taking on those care responsibilities again. Oh, yeah. I've changed a lot of nappies. <laughs> but, you know, a lot of crying in the night. So, you know, I think a little bit of disturbed sleep never helps. Mm. But, yeah, overall, pretty good. And if you felt comfortable saying, what mental health conditions do you live with and how do they affect you in your day-to-day life? So I have generalised anxiety disorder, which is... um. It's a weird one because sometimes I don't feel anxious at all. Mm. I really go through the whole of the spectrum, you know. Mm. Sometimes I don't feel anxious at all. And I have some days where I'm, like, panic attacks in the toilet at uni. And then, you know, some days where I'm, like, yeah, I'm not even... I can't even leave the house because I'm anxious. But, you know, it really just sort of depends, I guess, on how I'm feeling generally, what I've got going on, and just, you know, different stuff, I suppose. Mm. And what age do you think you were when you first realised that these sort of feelings weren't physical and they were actually in your mind? I think when I was about 14 or 15, I think I got to a point where I thought, okay, like, my body's... It's not just my body that's making me have, like, five panic attacks a day. You know, it has to be something more than it. I think I kind of put it all together and thought, well, you know, with the thoughts that I'm having, plus, you know, all the panic attacks and all the physical stuff, it can't just be down to one thing. Mm. Um, what things do you find in life that trigger your mental health or your anxiety, to be more specific? You know, this could be things that people say. It could be an inf- a particular environment, um, objects, situations. So tell me a bit about what those triggers are. Um, at the minute, it seems to be a lot about big lectures at university. And mm-hmm. I'm not sure what it is about a big room that's bothering me like at the minute. 100 people, 150 people, that no, sort of size? No, not even that. I'm oh, talking okay. like 40 people, which right. probably isn't a big lecture to a lot of people, but I'm on quite a small degree. So, you know, we only tend to have 15 of us in a room normally. I go into one with 40 of us and I'm like, oh, I can't do it. Mm. But, you know, it's that loud noises seem to be bothering me. But again, sometimes for me, it's random. Mm. Like, you know, something will trigger me for ages and then it's like, just as I get over that one, then, like, a new one will kind of pop up. Mm. And what tools and methods do you use in your own life that help your mental health? What methods do you use to improve it? And what ones have you found that worked and what ones that haven't worked, maybe, as well? i found that exercise works really well. Not just, like, I know some people, you know, can do, like, dance or, like, team sports, but actually I found that just lifting weights really helps especially like the heavier weight I lift kind of like the the better I feel I'm the same <laughs> yeah maybe it's kind of like I don't know like the body feels like oh it's lifting something and so mm. does the mind I like mm. to kind of put that together um I use um, the Headspace app quite a lot to you know sort of meditate and relax that can be a bit hit and miss sometimes I find it works better before bed than if I'm kind of in a flurry mm. and just really overthinking stuff you know, there's nothing worse than when someone says, and clear your mind. And then it's like, your mind's like a dirty rave when there's like 100 <laughs> people in a room that should only have 30 people in it and it's just disgusting. Mm. But... And how do you support friends in your own social group now that you've had these experiences, you know, with their mental health? They might not have a condition, but they might, you know, be going through a bad period of their mental health. You know, what do you do to help them? I mean, I'd like to think that I'm the sort of person... You can pretty much come to with anything. I like to think I've got quite a varied life experience mm. that, you know, you could kind of say anything to me. Like, I've had a few friends lately whose even nans or mums have become unwell. Mm. And, you know, I'm kind of seen as an expert on it because people are like, oh, 
when when your nan went through radiotherapy, what was that like? What was this like? And I suppose I'm just quite good at reassuring and being like, you know, you'll have all of these ideas of how bad something will be. Mm. And, you know, not saying it will be easy, but it might not necessarily be as bad as what they think it's going to be. When you had those people come to you, did it take you a while to get used to that? Because I feel like, for me, it took me quite a long time to, to adjust to being seen as an advocate, in inverted commas. I don't really normally like using those sort of words, but... You know, people will come to me for advice. They might not say they might they know they might not say what drug should I take because I can't give them that advice. Mm. But they might say, "Oh, my friend is going through this. I know that you've gone through this. What should I do? Well, how can I help them?" No, I don't. You mean it's just weird because sometimes I'm like, "What the fuck are you asking me? Like, what do you think <laughs> I know?" But then I look back on it and I think, actually, I suppose especially when it comes to medical side of things and looking after somebody, I know quite a lot about a few different. Conditions. You're obviously not a doctor, so... Yeah, I'm definitely not a doctor, but I suppose if you're looking at it from a practical side of how you balance your life while looking after somebody, then I suppose I am quite a good person to come to, but mm. I think it just took me a while to actually realise that I've got all of these skills and experiences that I didn't really value that much. Mm. And when you wrote those articles for, for Ben, did you... What was the reaction to it? Did people start coming to you for advice about their mental health from it? You know, what what sort of happened after that? I had a couple of friends and actually people who I used to go to secondary school with, you know, pop up to me and be like... They, were they nice to you? Yeah, the, the ones... Okay. Yeah, the ones... Well, yeah, I, didn't, I didn't have anything horrible back. But, you know, people pop up and be like, I just really had no idea that you'd been through mm. that much, that you always come across so, like, loud and bubbly. Mm. And that even though I come across a little bit nervous to people sometimes when I talk it's not that they didn't necessarily you know think it was because of that they just mm. sort of thought it was you know a personality trait mm. toxic masculinity is something that that we talk a lot about on this pod Brie, but I think it's pretty important to point out that you were bullied by girls as well as boys is that correct yeah yeah do you think there's such a thing as toxic femininity or is it just the case of girls being very cruel I think probably a mixture of both, actually. I think it kind of plays into one another, is that there's definitely toxic female environments, you know. Mm. You only have it's probably to a look... better word for it, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, there probably is a better word for it. I just haven't got I'll the just word being for a bit it. of a... But being a bit cheeky with that question. No, yeah. But um, I think there definitely is a problem, especially if you look at things like online social media, is that, you know, there does seem to be... Obviously, there's still a problem with, like, you know, men and the mm. way they use it. But with girls, it just seems to have been going on for so much longer. Oh, 100%. And, you know, I've been... Mm. Especially even when I was at school, which, you know, I weren't that long ago, but from now, social media has changed so much, even in the five years since I've left school, which is crazy. Well, think about what I was like when I was, when I was in school. So I, I always say I joke about it because I always feel that if you can joke about your experiences, mm. you own them. Um, I always joke that I was lucky I only got bullied on Facebook. Yeah. Now there's Snapchat, eight, nine, Instagram. ten social media platforms. And so I presume for you, you had... Most of those, but not all of them? Not all of them. So I think Instagram only really became a big thing when I was in year 10 or year 11. Mm. You know, which is quite weird to say that when you think about how big it is now. But there was always kind of an issue around it where, you know, you'd post something on Instagram and people would judge you for it. But it'd mm. more be the girls. The boys didn't really care as much as I found in my school. Mm. But I think there definitely is a toxic culture, possibly from a much younger age, you know, being like, oh, well, you know, you must dress like this. You must talk like this. You must act like this. Being like, oh, that's not a very girly thing to do. Mm. Or, you know, that's not really how a girl should behave. Mm. And how do we challenge that? For I girls and, and also, how do we challenge it as boys, but coming from a positive place? 
I think just try you know the same thing like boys will be boys mm. and you know oh, that's a bit of an outdated thing yeah now, you know it? you have like boys will be boys but then it still kind of seems to be a case of oh well girls should act in a certain way mm. and I think by just sort of you know reducing the stereotype as much as you can so for me as a teacher I suppose you know if the girl's a little bit more boisterous I won't be saying to her oh you should be acting like the other girls or because, don't be so bossy yeah, or, don't be, yeah, yeah. or don't be so bossy just you know yeah, I don't like the whole personality traits change between a boy, a little between male and a female. I think it's just important to hold everybody to the same standards mm. and stop making anything like a specific boy problem or a specific girl problem. Just make it everybody's problem. Mm. And touching on social media as well, was 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 cyberbullying that something that you experienced as well? And if so, how did it sort of occur? I mean, I'm quite lucky, I suppose, in the way that I never really joined Instagram or Snapchat until I was in, like, year 11. I was mm. really late to the party. I was mm. still on, like, Blackberry Messenger when I was in year 10, and everyone's like, what the fuck are you using that? That is old, because I, I was off Blackberry when I was in yeah. year 10, so... I was just behind with the times. It took me a while to catch up, so I think, luckily, I didn't really encounter a lot of that. I think WhatsApp group chats were possibly a problem as mm. I moved into college, but I think apart from that... No, I didn't really have much problem on social media. Mm. And do you foresee it getting worse before it gets better when it comes to social media and, and teenagers? Yeah, because I think the more kids are having phones and access to all of this stuff from a younger age, you know, it's quite easy to just fake your birthday on any platform you mm. want to pretend that you're 13 when you're possibly only, like, six or seven. Mm. And I think, you know, just because their parents think they're monitoring an account, kids are clever. Kids will have, like, two accounts and they'll be like, oh, this is the one my mum looks at that, you know, only my friends follow. And then this is the one that everyone looks at and I'm doing all sorts of wild, wild mm. stuff on it. Mm. So, you know, I think it's going to be the sort of thing that it's going to take time to have stricter laws on it and to actually give parents the tools, I think, to know how to control it. I think a lot of the parents have, like, views where especially when their child gets to 13, 14, 15, as, oh, they're a teenager now. I can't be with them and hold their hands all the time. They need mm. to learn how to cope, which, you know, I definitely agree with. But I think when something's online, it's so much easier to hide. Mm. And there definitely needs to be a little bit more poking and prodding into what might be going on behind the scenes. I think it's also a case of good parenting, to be fair, yeah. because I see a lot of parents now, some of them... I saw a kid the other day on the train and his dad was reading a paper book to him on the train. I just thought... Oh. I just I literally spotted the geese. I was like, you're a sick dad. Mm. But I also see a lot of parents now who just give them the iPhone, just give yeah. them the iPad. And it's from a scarily young, young age. Like, I played a lot of PlayStation, Nintendo 64 when I was young, but you could turn that off. There's kids now like, in schools who actually... They're opening paper books and they're trying to swipe it and zoom in. Like no way. Like they're on an iPad. Yeah. I can tell you a few cases of, like, in nurseries where I've seen kids do it, look at a book and be like, what the fuck is this? And try and zoom That's it really in to make the text bigger. It's terrifying. Like, don't get me wrong, iPads and iPhones, they have their They're places. They're a tool. They're a tool. Yeah. trying to make, you know, you want them to sit down for half hour before bed? Yeah, it's a great thing. You know, oh, you're getting on a plane and you don't want them to scream for six hours? Mm. Yeah, you know, mm. give them the iPhone or the iPad. But... I think it's being replaced, you know, we're replacing Replacing it. parenting, aren't we? Yeah, replacing yeah. parenting and replacing a lot of the social interaction that you need as a kid. Mm. Because, you know, if you don't get a chance to practice your speech or practice playing and sort of mimic these real-life situations you're about to go into, when you're actually in them, you know, it's going to be such a big reality shock for mm. them. You've obviously been an advocate for quite a while now. Have you made more connections through Twitter and how have you seen the positive side of it in regards to mental health? 
No, yeah, I think Twitter is such a, like, it can be such a horrible place, but actually such a lovely place mm. where, you know, people can just sort of share, like, oh, I'm having a bit of a shit day. And I've noticed, especially in, like, the mental health community, people be like, oh, it's okay, I'm having a shit day too, mm. but we're going to get through it. And, uh, you know, especially if you're promoting things, you know, mm. people were very quick to say, oh, that's a great thing, I'm going to promote that. Mm. You know, and sort of, you know, reading each other's writing. I've connected with a few other poets on Twitter and sort of, like, you know, read each other's work. Mm. And, yeah, it's just been really nice. And on the poetry, on the on the final point, do you see yourself maybe doing spoken word nights? Do you see yourself kind of taking that part of your life and that that part of your work that you you did for then sort of beyond and and into different things that maybe might take you out of your comfort zone? No, yeah, definitely. I think I used to do spoken word, but I think the last couple of summers I don't I just haven't really had the time for it. But mm. it's definitely something that I'm looking to get back into. Well, I think that's all we've got time for on this edition of the Just Checking In podcast. Bree, thank you so much for being my special guest on this edition's pod and for checking in with me. It's always great to see you. As always, thank you to all the venters who tuned in. Remember, if you've liked what you've heard, give this a share on all the usual social media channels. Tell your friends or work colleagues about it. Or if you're feeling really, really generous, write a little review on iTunes. We hope to check in with you again very soon. Remember, it's always okay to vent. It's true.